Support for this podcast is provided by Cressa. Cressa is the occupier's champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle, from workplace strategy and discovery through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to cressa.com Portland to connect with the Portland advisory team. From That Cast Creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week, I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to PDX Executive Podcast. We're back. I think this is episode 110. Doing them virtually still. Excited to have my next guest, uh, Ken Tamita, co-founder and CEO of GroveMade. Ken, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. So, like you mentioned, uh, we before we started recording, you're at your manufacturing facility, still still yes. working. So, yes. Uh, uh, so, so you, uh, the audience may hear uh, the sound of CNC machines changing tools, uh, compressed air blasting. Um, we're a unique company in that we're like a completely vertically integrated, uh, which means that means my office is inside a factory. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what that means. I love it. It's authentic, like you said. So, yeah. well, I always like to start, um, maybe we can just, if you, you don't mind, give a little origin story of, you know, who yeah. you are and just how Grove Made was, was started, but you know, what it is and what, what you make as well. Right. Um, I'm actually a Portland local, which is really unusual. Yeah, one of the few. Uh, yeah, people always ask me, like, they want some kind of interesting story about why we chose to do business here. And mine is pretty boring. I grew up here. Uh, um, but, it, you know, we're a product of Portland, too. The creative community here really formed, like, who I became. Uh, so, GrowMate started in 2009. Um, before that, I was a furniture maker. Mm. Uh, Back then, it wasn't as cool as it is now. Yeah. Now it's like a, there's like a Portlandia skit about <laughs> furniture makers. It's a really, it's a really good one. Have you seen that? No, I'm gonna have to check it uh, out though. That's you, you got to check it out right after this. Uh, but I was a custom furniture maker, um, making um, furniture, pretty high end stuff with a very low volume, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of like barely making it. I was like mm-hmm. a starving artist, mm-hmm. uh, and I met my business partner. Uh, that I started this this company with. He happened to live in this beat up house across the street from a workshop I moved into, hmm. and he was like this crazy entrepreneur guy, uh, really young. I mean, I was young, I was young too. I think he was in his mid twenties, and I was late twenties. Okay, yeah. and he, he's that guy that has a million ideas, you know? right? And and out of this beat up house, he was running a laser engraving business. I hmm. have like a bedroom, and by beat up, I mean like. The Fight Club house, that's what we called it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah, and it's surrounded by industrial, you know. Uh, anyways, he had this idea. Um, when the iPhone came out, he was super excited about it, the original iPhone. He's mm-hmm. like, this is going to change the world. I didn't really care. I was like doing my woodworking. <laughs> uh, and he had already like started dabbling in e-commerce. He okay. actually has the first Shopify store 
uh, of all time in, in the state of Oregon. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Early. Uh, early. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Grove Maid is actually number two. Oh, wow. Cool. <laughs> yeah. We've been around for a while. So one of his crazy ideas was to make a bamboo iPhone case um, for the iPhone 3. Remember, it was like kind of round? Yeah. The original OG yeah. one. Yeah. And he went around to like local manufacturers. Nobody wanted to do it. And I was kind of hitting like a slow period at work. This is 2009. Remember? Okay. Yeah. Two things yeah. happened to the economy back then. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're <laughs> Especially back in construction. Yeah. Right? Especially in construction. So I was like, oh, whatever. Uh, I'll do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's try to make one of these things. So he didn't really come up with a business plan uh, at all. It was more like, hey, let's, this is a cool opportunity. Like, we should make this, this bamboo iPhone case, uh, put laser engraved art on it. Uh-huh. That was kind of his vision because he already had this e-commerce business uh, laser engraving art onto most of the notebooks. Okay. And at that uh, time, so. I mean, having like a iPhone case wasn't really a thing, right? No, no, yeah. it wasn't. Not with the iPhone 3. No one had done it. You know, he's one of those guys that's not always right, but he's thinking way ahead, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I wasn't, I was more of a head down in the garage working hard kind of guy. So he just went for it. Um, took us about a year to develop our first product and it actually totally flopped. It was a case for the iPhone three and the day we launched it, I don't know if you remember this far back then, but, uh, an Apple engineer lost an iPhone four prototype in a bar. I do remember that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Back then these leaks were a big deal. Yeah. Uh, whereas now you can find out everything back then. Steve jobs had like an ironclad grip on the information about Apple. Right. But suddenly everybody was talking about the iPhone 4. Nobody cared about our product. Uh, it was a sad day. Like <laughs> We had taken some huge risks. I bought this $75,000 CNC machine. Wow. And really struggled. And, you know, but uh, we snapped out of it after a day and turned it into an opportunity. Now we know what the next one looks like. Yeah. We started engineering that. Of course, we don't have the actual phone. So mm-hmm. we kind of made one that looked like it would work and then photoshopped the phone in and we started selling it uh right when the iphone 4 came out and back then like nobody really did like pre-orders like kickstarter didn't exist right and we we went out with like a pre-order deposit it was like 20 bucks or something and we were the only people that had a product that the launch of iphone because Everybody else is waiting until they actually have. And you just product. kind of did it on spec. You didn't know the exact <laughs> no. specifications, or no, nor that we anyway to scale it. We didn't even have one really made, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, we just we just freaking went for it, man. <laughs> it, it's kind of like Kickstarter now, but like without the infrastructure. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that actually exploded. We got on Gizmodo um, mm-hmm. back then. There were only a few blogs. If we got on one of those big boys. It was huge. And we were right after an article about how the iPhone for um, the glass breaks. Remember it's glass on both sides? Oh, yeah, yeah. So people are freaking about freaking out about this expensive phone breaking. And they uh, right after that, there's this article about our bamboo iPhone face. And the sales just skyrocketed. Um, it was one of those things where it's like too much, you know? And it was just, I mean, I assume it's kind of like, uh, oh, Okay, this is real. Like this is we got this yeah. is a real business now, yeah. right? Overnight yeah. kind of thing. Overnight. And it was an oh crap moment because we didn't have <laughs> we didn't have the infrastructure or even to make one. Uh, mm-hmm. 
but you know, we, we persevered. It was, it was probably the most stressful time of my life mm-hmm. to have thousands of customers expecting their product and we basically took their money. Yeah. Um, you've heard these horror stories about Kickstarters failing, like the, yeah. the cooler company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we, we made it. Man. We just freaking muscled it through. She just had, I mean, I assume you, like you said, you had zero inventory basically yeah. and just got all these orders and just like, let's go. We're going to make it. We're going to yeah, do it. Thousands. I don't wow. remember the exact number, but it was at least probably five or 6,000 orders. Wow. Right and so, so how, I mean, at that point, it's like you got these orders. It's, it's, you're, probably like you and your co-founder okay this is real how'd you kind of scale it to where it is now and i know you've evolved your product line i was on your site here of all the stuff you do but uh what what were those those growing pains like uh well in the beginning we hired our friends and then (laughs) then friends of friends and that somehow turned into like a reed college thing Mm. we were hiring all these reed college kids Mm. and then we even kind of created like a we kind of outsourced to this one reed college kid who basically had like a sweatshop in a basement <laughs> of other Reed college kids <laughs> and we paid him a flat rate and I don't know what he did. That's none of my business, you know, <laughs> what, he did, what he did down there with his Reedies. But <laughs> that's how it was in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, we were very inefficient uh, on, a, on every front because we were so unsophisticated. Um, mm-hmm. I had never had a real job before. I was mm-hmm. kind of like this crazy artist guy. Mm-hmm. I had never managed anyone for sure. No idea how to do finance. I think like the people side was the hardest. Mm. And um, I had never, we didn't really think about it. Like, what would it be like? Right. Or what, what was our big, very audacious goal? Like, there was none of that. Uh, so probably the first, I don't know, two or three years was kind of a scramble. Sure. Of always being behind, not running efficiently, uh, but doing our best. You know, We had a great team of people that were really motivated and excited. Mm. Uh, but eventually the operation side and we had too many employees. We have probably had 25 or 30 people. Okay. Things started breaking down without strong management. So, uh, for a confluence of events, I ended up hiring a really great uh, operations manager, Scott okay. Jim Passer, and that was kind of a game changer to get us from just help with skeletal to like a legit business. And how was it for you? I mean, like you said, you kind of self-labeled yourself like you're an artist kind of heads down doing the work and going from, okay, I got to make, you know, hire an operations manager. How is it for you personally? Just you know, going through this, was it exciting? Stre- I mean, stressful, all the above. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting looking back. Um, my dad was like a business guy, like an executive type. Okay. And I had no interest in that, you know? And I was um, like reading all these business books growing up and working so hard and just like passing out because he's so tired mm. you know, at home, sleeping and stuff. And I, I thought it was stupid, you know, <laughs> I didn't get it. And uh, I was in business school for like two semesters, I think, in college. And I thought it was boring, so I dropped out. Uh, but once this, once this business started, my, my interest started shifting from um, art to how do we run a company? How do we uh, lead a team of people that are inspired and uh, share a common vision? That started shifting in me and my passion shifted from like the literally creative to more, how do we lead a team to be creative? And then the business side really started to fascinate me. Um, 
you know, it was a, it was a kind of a mindset shift because before I was really limited by what I could do with my own talent and my bare hands. And all of us are limited, right? There's, right. there's a finite level you can reach. Then I started to kind of see, like, wow, with the team, those boundaries kind of melt away. There really isn't a limit. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It's harder to work with a bunch of people, but it's really exciting to know that you can do anything. And when I started to believe that, everything changed in my mindset. I think that shift is, I you know, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and all the successful ones like you come to that same kind of point, right? And there's the people that turn back. And it's like, I'm just going to keep, I'm not going to expand. I'm just going to keep yeah. doing my own thing. So kudos to you. I know that's, from what I understand, is it can be really personally quite a challenging, but also it it's like a breakthrough yeah. kind of. Yeah, it can. Yeah, and it's not for everyone, you know. Like, like my partner Joe, he's much happier with a small team, or actually solo. So, um, you know, I ended up buying him out of the company, and he was running a solo thing, and he was really good at that, and really happy with him. Like business is great because it's not like one right way to do it. Right. Yeah. There's a bunch of ways to do it, and it's like whatever fits. Yeah. And I feel like that's a little bit that ethos you're from here is kind of Portland too. It's like th- no one's trying to shove a certain type of business or like you have to get investment. You, you know I mean? Everybody kind of mm-hmm. does it their own way. And I think that's embraced here. I don't know if you feel yeah. that way or. I feel that way. Um, I think the startup, I mean, it might be just because the startup community isn't as intense here. Mm-hmm. Maybe by default. Um, but there, there's definitely like, there's people even smaller than us, these little maker companies, and then there's venture back businesses as well. And right. Everybody kind of, nobody's like looks down on me because I don't have investors. Like nobody ever asks me how much capital I've raised. Like, I don't yeah. think anyone really cares. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, and I, I love that about this town, you know? Yeah. Um, well, where can you talk, talk about where the business is at now? I don't know what you can share, like how many people work for you or just kind of new things yeah. you're, you're doing or. So we've been hovering around 15 to 20 employees for quite a while. Um, our business has completely changed. So we started with iPhone cases, right? And then uh, that was our whole business with like 30 employees or whatever. Uh, last week, we sold two iPhone cases and we removed the product. Uh, we're not going to make anymore. Mm. It's like a milestone. It's not even worth it for us to make anymore. And they're still around. It took about five years. Uh, but pivot out of that field, which is um, that accessory field was really brutal. Uh, a lot of our original competitors, maybe all or most of them, don't even exist anymore. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so to be able to uh, completely transform into a, a company that's about uh, workspace accessories, it's pretty remarkable, actually. It's something we're very proud of. Um, we almost didn't make it a couple times, so then. Yeah. And how that, that pivot, I mean, it's, I understand from like the manufacturing point of view, maybe it's, it's not that big of a jump or it probably is, but from going from iPhone cases to expanding to like, Hey, we're going to be a workplace accessory kind of company. I know you make some other stuff. Was that just from like research, market research or more of your own intuition or what was, how does that come about? That's a great question. I think it's a really interesting story looking back uh, when the iPhone thing t- was taken off, it was it was growing rapidly without us doing anything. Right, we did like no marketing. We were just trying to keep up with orders. Uh, but both Joe and I 
we knew that we were just riding on the shoulders of Apple and we knew it wasn't that solid of a business model. And uh, a lot of people were jumping into the space because it's very high profile and big opportunity means a lot of competition, right? So between us and other companies, the difference was we didn't want to stay in there or as other people, other companies tried to make more money in the channel by making cases for Androids and then HPC and whatever. And we, we got criticized a lot. I, I heard dozens of people tell me, you should be making Android, you should be making Android. And true, we would have made more money at the time, right? Short term. It's actually easy money. You just change shape, you'll buy it. Right. But we just saw no sustainable future in that. So we were taking the profits from the iPhone case business and exploring other business models and hoping that we'd find something. Mm. I love that. It takes some courage. I mean, especially for a small business to like, you know, your, your profits is really just invest back in yourself. So, um, well, what's, uh, out of the, let's, well, let's do this back. I was talking about COVID-19 because I can, okay. I'm assuming that based on what you make, this might actually be an interesting time for your company and supplying for people at home or how's it affected your business? Can you, yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty it's coincidental, of course, but uh, yeah. we're, our product line is focused on the home office. Yeah. Um, and I thought that people would work from home a little bit more each year, and then maybe it would take about four years till it was really mainstream. And it happened all at once, basically. So we're definitely seeing like a, a surge in interest in our product. And what's pretty bizarre is for safety reasons, we've actually shrank our team. So this is a scenario I've never dealt with before where our sales are increasing and we're laying off people. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty bizarre challenge. Um, but we're, we're also very fortunate, you know, like other businesses have been hit really hard and uh, don't have time to deal with the problems we're, we're dealing with, you know, we're dealing right. with much more immediate issues. Yeah. I think it'll hit us too, though. Um, right now the sales are up. But when a full-on recession hits and white-collar workers start getting nervous, uh, it's an interesting debate what will happen to us. But typically, luxuries go. They're kind of nice-to-haves. Or big big ticket purchases start putting them off. So mm -hmm. I think that's going to hit us. And then uh, we're definitely going to see more competition in our space. Yeah. You know, we were kind of quietly doing our thing. And now there's everybody wants to jump in on uh, work from home. Yeah, we got just a couple of things to unpack there. I mean, just for you as a leader, everybody I talk to, it, it, the uncertainty of it is the biggest. Yes. You, no one's, no one's got a crystal ball. No one's saying yeah, this is going to happen. So, how are you? Uh, I don't know what you can reveal. Just how are you planning it for it as as someone who leads the team and leads the company? Um, and I assume you're being kind of communicative with your team about, hey, there's some uncertainty sure. here. Or? Yeah, you know, product strategy doesn't really change. We're already yeah. <laughs> we're already focused on what's happening. Uh, but the team, it, it's a, it's an interesting time because we're having simultaneously threats and opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. So what I what I try to do is just be upfront about it. You know, I don't pretend to know everything. I just tell my team how it is, and you know, if they have any questions, they can talk to me further. But I yeah. basically told them what I told you, like phase, the first wave is opportunity. Mm -hmm. Second wave is 
recession and tightening budgets, you know, third wave is competition. Yeah. So, it's, it's, uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I hope, well, I think here Portland community wise for the business community, I'd like your thoughts on it is coming together to try to help small businesses any way mm-hmm. people can. Um, mm-hmm. are you feeling that way or how's it I being here so. in Portland? I think so. Um, I just told my team a, a, a short story this morning in our morning huddle because I, I thought it was inspiring to me. Uh, there's like a wine shop, like a wine barn near my house, and they're closed, right? They can't operate. But I, I saw like a handwritten sign in their window <laughs> with, the, with the phone number and it says, well, we deliver beer. So I called them and it's just like the owner and he just yeah. drives around his truck and uh, you, you just... Talk to him over the phone. He takes credit card number and he just drops it off at your house. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and, I, and I talked to this guy. I was like, "Hey, how are you? How are you holding up?" And he was like, "All smiles." He's like, "Man, I'm just taking a day to day. You know, it's all relative." He 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 said, uh, "This is this sure beats you know being on the beach in Normandy." You know? Yeah, he's so like, "It's all relative. I'm hanging in there, doing best I can." And he just like got in his truck and sped off to his next delivery. You know. I love that. We need that, that gratitude <laughs> and perspective. Um, yeah. I have really tried not to read or watch the news the past couple of days because mm-hmm. it's just gotten me so down economically of, of all this. So I, I love to hear stories like that. That's so great. Um, well, let's shift back to Portland a little bit. I always like to kind of, sure. as we wrap up, maybe as like you said, you're from here. You, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like you're one of those people that moved up from the, the Bay Area or nothing against those people. I think Jason Bolt, who recommended you, actually did that. So, But how have you seen it change since you've been in business since 2009? Mm-hmm. Um, and where do you think we're going? What are like some of the pros about staying here, uh, but also mm-hmm. challenges we have is just uh, for being a company here? Yeah, uh, I think we've experienced it firsthand how Portland has changed uh, because we were working in the Central East Side. Yeah. So we were in the town storage building, which for a long time was like the cheapest rent imaginable. This is beat up brick building right by the Burnside Bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started there and we gradually took over like five spaces and we eventually outgrew it. So we moved to Ninth and Stark. But, you know, to sum it all up, that spot, that building was bought by Autodesk. And they pumped in seventy million or something like that, and it became the most expensive office space of all time in Portland. And to see that shift so quickly, you know, a lot of people got displaced. Um, but that's kind of also progress. Like we can we can complain about it, but it's not really going to change anything. Uh, so we're kind of focused on, hey, this these forces are happening. Like, what are we going to do about it? Right. That's that's my mindset. So we, yeah. what we ended up doing is uh, buying a building further out. Okay. Um, and we never really did that. Um, had the courage to do that before, but I felt like with the threats of the volatility problem, it would be worthwhile to just have one less thing to worry about. And it kind of pushed us to, you know, become an adult and do it. <laughs> well, there's such a thriving, you know, I've, I've had the fortune to, to, to get involved in the manufacturing community a little bit through this podcast and some other podcast projects I'm a part of. And I'm always so inspired by there is a manufacturing small business core here that people don't realize maybe just Mm -hmm. from the food to what you do, like Olympia provisions and all all these great, you know, companies and brands. So, uh, 
it, it's really cool to see, uh, you know, even as the city changes, there's still that, there's still mm-hmm. that here. And I think because of the re- economy is crashing yeah. in a weird way, like that will enable some of these like lower value businesses like ours that aren't like tech startups to, you know, it'll help us be able to afford the city. Um, I mean, it'll probably reset again. And that's just part of natural progress. But Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ken, thanks so much for taking the time to be on and um, it's grovemade.com. Uh, looking forward to, you know, meeting a person down the road, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, again, hopefully hard. soon. Yeah, yeah, it's hopefully soon. So thanks so much, Ken. All right, thanks, Ken. The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of ThatCast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well. 